This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, do we have any privacy online anymore? Stephen Neville, Professor and Software Engineering Program Director at the University of Victoria, helps us understand what we're getting tracked with online. How are Ukrainians raising their families amidst the ongoing war with Russia? Stephen Berko, a lawyer and democracy advocate and a dad, shares his family's story and the challenges of raising children in wartime. Plus, are you okay with convenience stores and changing tires? Are you okay with BK running half marathons and crushing it? Dude? Why not? It's all on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. After weeks and weeks of preparation, this past weekend was a big weekend here on the Shift. Mostly for Brendan Kelly, not really for me and Ryan. <laughs> but we'll take yeah, credit. What did you guys do? This past weekend, after weeks and weeks of preparation, Brendan Kelly officially, officially, um, ran his half marathon. And when he put this, uh, this thought together, it's, he was like, ah, I'm going to run once. It's been a long time. He used to run these things before. And he's like, I want to do this. And so before we get into this, um, this thing, so you can get it, um, we need to introduce Brendan Kelly's work, uh, properly. And so I wanted to, you know, really kind of, so I go, hope you got your popcorn ready and you're ready to go, and let me get started here. Don't play the thing yet, I'll tell you what. Okay. Once in a lifetime, you get an inside look into the world of a technical producer. But this technical producer is no ordinary technical producer. He's a technical producer that runs. And he runs fast. He runs very fast. The inside world of DJ BK. Brendan Kelly running a half marathon this fall in Vancouver. Now's your chance. Huh? What do you think? Oh, that's good. No, if I, yeah. I if an autobiography film ever comes up, I'll certainly tap you to do the trailer. Hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Anyway, yeah. um, here is BK's production of running a half marathon Saturday from not only the beginning of the marathon, from the beginning of the waking up in the day. Uh, uh, Ala Brennan Kelly, congratulations on your work. Here is how it goes. After surprisingly falling asleep just past the 1 a.m. hour, the day begins at 6 o'clock in the morning. And then it abruptly ends again and and re-begins at about 6.55. It was a close call. Okay, the clock strikes 7.01 a.m., and I kind of slept sporadically and in bursts over the last five hours. So that's a win. Right, so 
So this is bad half marathon etiquette. Because of how late I got up in the morning, I wasn't able to make my hearty eggs and bacon breakfast that I actually planned to. So basically, I crammed down four Cliff Bars. They're always good in a pinch. All right, just past 8 o'clock in the morning, lovely 10 degrees. I'm at the grounds of the University of British Columbia. Made it on the bus this morning. It was quite a slog to get out of bed. Had my pre-workout, but I got here. Now I'm looking for a coffee, which is always a risk before a race because you get into kilometer 10 and have to pee. That's never fun. But I also need the caffeine boost. All right, scalding hot. Scalding hot coffee obtained. Ow, jeez. So, just past 8 o'clock in the morning, heading up to the start line with my scalding hot coffee. I feel good. I feel carb loaded. I had yam fries last night. That's a pretty big deal for me, yam fries. The one and only Shane Hewitt just texted me. Apparently he's got snow. So there's 10 degrees. Could be worse, you know? It's funny. I'm walking up to the line and there's people running past me. They're like running to the race. So for those of you who's, who are all like, oh my God, I can't understand how, how BK does it. There are people running to the half marathon. Think about that. All right, so I go inside, check my gear so I don't have to carry awkward things like my keys during the race, and I see everybody stretching far more than I am. I'm just enjoying my scalding hot coffee. And, very importantly, got to get my Spotify playlist together. Now, I held this Spotify playlist really close to my heart because you can't run with music that's either too fast or too slow. So I run to a lot of ladies. Alright, here we are at the start line and ready to roll. A few K's here. There's uh, electrolyte stations, and they are absolute chaos. Uh, people come in, going in cups and splashing, and it's just wonderful, wonderful. And you get sticky. And my my, I I keep running through them. I, I a lot of people stop and you know take a drink, but I, I don't do that. I keep running, and and I just get electrolyte all over me, and it's sticky and great. <laughs> I died, I died, I First half of the race with uh, oh gas bubble just uh, it uh, didn't help, didn't help. But I feel like it's dissipating. Uh, burping a lot, yeah, that helps. Not the people around me though. Electrolyte up the up the nose doesn't help. Doesn't help. No. Gummy, 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 gummy. Overdrive. The second half of a race, weird pains always start to come up. Like today, I don't know, something was going on with my hip. 
and my thigh, but the dialogue between my brain and that whatever muscle that was was kind of like Sulu in Star Trek VI as he was racing to help save Kirk from General Chang and the Klingons. In range? Not yet, sir. Come on, come on. She'll fly apart. Fly apart, then. Now, one of my mental strategies to get through the final few <laughs> kilometers of any long half marathon is to pretend I'm in a montage. It really works. <laughs> Coming in just past the finish line here. Uh, my app says 155, which is great. That's under the two-hour goal that I wanted to go for. But I'll have to check the official chip time on the website. I really started giving her in the last K. Had so much in the tank. It's uh, crazy. I only hope I have enough in the, the tank to sit upright on the bus on the way home. It's always great because you kind of stink after these things. It's a big public transit home. It's wonderful. I'm uh, going to enjoy this banana. That's Brendan Kelly's Adventure Twenty-One uh, K Half Marathon uh, Running Race this weekend. That's what it sounds like. That is unbelievable. I had no idea the no. sticky electrolytes either. Either like when you're running through and people are grabbing cups and stuff, and then you end up with spills all over the place. All that must be terrible. Over the place, all over. The, there's a little uh, technique you can use to like bend the cups so that you pour it into your mouth better but i never do it right and a lot of times i go to pour and it does go up my nose all the time oh wow yeah, and it gets sticky your hands get sticky it's it's good it's good fun okay so what was the biggest victory of that day for you? if you had to pick one thing that you're most proud of that you're like I, I i really nailed that part which part was it oh the final kilometer when i just like i went by the 20k sign and i was just like i feel like i could go forever and i've got so much energy right now a lot of gummies. I had a lot of like the little caffeine gummies. I think they really kicked in sort of towards the end there. And yeah. I just gave her. Like I ran as fast as I could for that final K. And I was like, I don't care how much this hurts. I'm almost done anyway. So really? I was going to give her. So what was the biggest uh, hurdle that you overcame? Like what was the hardest thing that you encountered that you managed to overcome to get there as you ran your half marathon? Uh, one of two things. Obviously the getting up. Um getting up and getting going in the morning which was tough because i was supposed to get up at six and i did fall back asleep and luckily and like on alarm like no alarm i got up again at six fifty-five. so that could have been the biggest disaster obviously missing the whole thing and to the ga- the gas bubble the yam fries the night before that uh yeah gas is not fun it sits in your stomach it makes you real heavy there when you're running and so yeah uh, i did do a lot Amazing. of burping though and i apologize to those who were running around me <laughs> oh, that's good. Uh, so Brendan Kelly ran a half marathon this past weekend. Join us next time when Ryan O'Donnell takes on two flights of stairs in a row. Oh, no. And you know what they say. The sequel is always better than the original. <laughs> Congratulations, BK, man. That's wicked. I love it. I love that you did it. 
Thank you. And it's a it's a real cool look, man, to hear inside it as it goes like that, to be able to hear as you go. That's really cool. Thanks for doing that. Of Appreciate course. It. And uh, maybe 2023, I'm thinking about doubling the distance. So we'll see. Whoa. Although I probably won't talk in that one. I'm sorry. I can't do it live. <laughs> really? I'll, I'll probably, probably won't be able to talk after that one for a couple well, days. Well, we could get Ryan an electric scooter and he could ride next to you. Yeah. And he could just hold the microphone. Yeah. Oh, that, that sounds awesome. awesome. Yeah. That sounds great. Yeah. Count me in, man. <laughs> yeah. Um, look forward to Ryan O'Donnell's spring half marathon coming your way to uh, your radio uh, soon. Be a part of it. This is the Shift Podcast. Are you okay with... Convenience stores. Convenience stores. Um, yeah, I don't go into them as much because I don't drive, but they were awesome in high school to go in and pop in and get a, get a hot dog. Hot dog. Oh, you know what I found this weekend for sale? You know those uh, hot dog machines with the rollers that roll the hot dog back and forth to cook the hot dog like you see in the convenience store? Um, I um, I almost bought one this weekend. I was like, how how amazing would that be yeah. to have like in the garage? And then you could have like all kinds of like hot dogs anytime that you want. Very cool, by the way. And um, I just thought that'd be a great, great way to go. You know what kind of convenience store I like? Is I like the convenience stores that sell beer and liquor. That to me is my kind of convenience store. I love it going into the states, BK, when you can go and just you know just walk in and grab a drink. I know you don't drink anymore, but yeah, no, that's definitely definitely very very American. Um, although I remember one time when I was drinking, I found out in LA that they they lock them after after hours. They do. It's like 11 p.m. Yeah, or something, depending like, on the state. Yeah. You can't. You so you can't buy it after 11 p.m. You can't. You well, can't. I know the ABC stores. Yeah, like you can see it. They put a plastic sheet down, and it, the Kinda sheet like goes it. over the cooler, and so you can see all the drinks, but you can't buy the drinks. Although I did one day reach in like 11:05 and grab a six pack and take it to the till, and they're like, "You can't buy that." I'm like, what do you mean I can't buy that? Like, yeah, that's so covered really? up, so you can't take it. Yeah, it's, it's just like, that? well, because the stores are open 24 hours, but they can't sell booze for all 24 hours. Oh yeah, that's right. Okay, because I was gonna say that those are that's the that's the perfect hour when people go to the party, and then their friends are coming later. I need you to bring booze. I didn't bring enough, and then they stop on their way. So that makes sense. But also, the laws are a thing. I understand. I was yeah. confused at first. Well, so that makes sense. Many of them are open twenty four hours, so you get a bunch of people coming in after the bar, and they don't that's usually the don't need flag. anymore. Yeah. They usually don't yeah. need anymore at that point. They're My, full. Yeah, they're <laughs> full. My only uh, uh, thing for convenience stores is uh, what makes a good convenience store to me is they have to sell Cliff bars. If they don't sell Cliff bars, Amen. they're not, not worth being a convenience store. Really? Hey, that's yeah. it. That's all it takes. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, it's your one-stop shop to get candy, snacks, cliff bars, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. beers, Red Bull, and the ever-wonderful gas station sushi. Don't do it. But in one place on this fine planet Earth, you will be able to bl- buy weed in Florida. What does it mean to be from Florida? Florida. Straight drip. Um, 
Uh, Floridians are soon going to be able to buy marijuana products along with cigarettes and snacks at Circle K gas stations. Circle K is getting into the medical marijuana business. The convenience store retailers teaming up with Green Thumb Industries to put dispensaries next to stores in about 10 different Florida locations. The stores will be called Rise Express after Green Thumb's Rise Dispensaries. In a statement, Green Thumb founder Ben Kovler said, The new Rise Express model is a huge step forward in making it easier and more efficient for patients to purchase high-quality cannabis. There are about 600 Circle Ks in Florida. The Rise Express stores will have various marijuana products from the company's facility in Ocala. Cobbler says convenience is a strong channel in retail, and people want more access to cannabis. Wow. Wow. NBC8 right there. Spokesperson for Circle K, which is a huge company, by the way. Yeah. They are everywhere. Europe, all over North America. Owned Spokesperson for company, though. What's that? Well, they might be in Canada. They're, they're, yeah, but they're, they're here. There's yeah. ones in Vancouver. They're all over England and Ireland. They're everywhere. So they were big. I think I don't know if it's a Quebec company anymore, Rye. We should look that up. Because it is. when I when I wrote the story, yeah, uh, it, because they were around yeah. and then they got bought, and then they bought out a bunch of other chains. But they're they're like all that. over the world now. So I wonder I wonder if there's more than one. Um, like if they got international, I don't know. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, Regardless, um, spokesperson for Circle K told CBS News that the agreement is the first example of premium cannabis retail being offered in one of the largest convenience store chains in the country. Marijuana is sold legally in Florida for medical use, with nearly five hundred sixty thousand Floridians currently possessing a medical marijuana card. Wow! So that, you still can't go in just buy retail retail. That Florida wouldn't have been my first guess for the first state to do that. No, yeah. right? I would have guessed Colorado, California. Um, yeah, those would have been my two guests. I mean, like it, Florida, yeah, but it's not fully legal there yet. It seems like a pretty big investment for something that only 500,000 people have legal access to. But maybe they're just planning and getting ahead when it gets fully legalized. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, Florida is just conservative-leaning state, so they're all for freedom, yeah. just not that kind of freedom. That's cool. I don't know. I, I think that it's genius to sell Doritos next to marijuana. Yeah, it's brilliant. But at liquor stores, at least in Canada, well, it depends on every province, too. Like, they couldn't, for the longest time, they couldn't sell food products, so you couldn't buy pop at the liquor store. You couldn't buy your mix. You can only buy your booze, but now you can buy the pop. It's a changing world. Are you okay with changing a tire? I did it for the first time ever wow. two years ago. Two years ago, really? my mom picked me up from work, and we were driving home, and my mom says, we have a flat tire. I'm like, okay, pull over. Sure enough, flat tire. And yeah, they pulled over. We pulled over at a, a Husky and there was nobody that was there to help us. And my mom's friends came over and helped us out. And uh, they kind of just walked me through how to do it. And it is, if you have the tools to do it, it's actually very easy. But if you don't have the tools, you're bungled. Yeah. Hmm. Sometimes you got to improvise. Like when one blows out uh somewhere between Albuquerque and Alamogordo, New Mexico, when there's no cell service at all. 
whatsoever. And there's also nothing but maybe a little weather station just sort of off in the desert. And you don't have the tools. Well, you do have the tools. You have a jack, but then it breaks. It just snaps and breaks as you're trying to do the tire change. And then eventually, after struggling forever, you and your friend are able to lift the car up on a bunch of suitcases to get the... (laughs) Get the tire changed, but you do finally do get the tire changed. I got the tire changed, um, and it was a very nerve wracking drive several hours to the next city, Alamogordo, to the Napa because we didn't know if we even got the tire on tight enough. It's gonna fly off at some point, but uh, you know, finally, there's a story there. There is, I've heard it. Yeah, well, the whole non cell service thing was really it was like it was 2014, and I was just like, wow, I'm gonna die in the New Mexico desert. My my neighbor down the alley here, I, I thought we were going to get hit by a tornado this weekend. It was such a redneck thing to do. He jacked up his minivan, which is not a very nice minivan. He's got some nice cars, and I don't know what he uses this minivan for. Work, maybe? I don't know. And But this rotten old minivan and jacked it up, and the jack was in the back in the center of his axle in the back. And on the front, he put it on blocks, but he put it on like on piles of wood blocks right at the center of the front axle. And so, and then he took all the wheels off and it looked really tippy. I was like, this thing could tip over onto its side very quickly. And it was high off the ground. It was high enough off the ground for it to get all the wheels off. And then I saw him unloading the wheels from the back of his truck as he was, I guess he probably took the rims off, went and got new wheels put on and then brought the wheels back for some reason, didn't drive the car over there. I don't know what it was going on. I fully expected to come home and see this car on its side or someone pinned underneath it. I'm like, this is a accident waiting to happen. There are some secrets to changing a tire, by the way, like loosen the lug nuts before you lift it off the ground so the wheel doesn't spin, things like that. It's helpful. A helping hand really is the best tool, though. A little bit of help. Whether they hand you the beer or do some of the work. There were plenty of helping hands available on the 405 Highway in California on Tuesday. That's because 36 cars all got flat tires all at once, all right on that highway. Take a look at this scene. Air 7 captured this morning on the 405. More than 30 cars all pulled over, lined up uh, behind the other, all with flat tires. Not a way to start your day. The good news is the California Highway Patrol says it doesn't appear to be intentional. Officials think maybe a box of nails or some wooden blocks fell off a truck, creating the hazard. And unfortunately, those drivers were caught up right behind it. I think what scares me is that the police still don't know what gave 36 cars flat tires. Yeah. And it's just who has a box of nails that just falls out of the back of a truck? Like, well, what are the chances? That being said of that, the amount of things you see on the side of a highway, that's really, really weird. That's true. I mean, we used to play the thing uh, here in Calgary. There's the Deerfoot goes north, south, right in the middle of the city. And we used to play a game called, what did we find on the Deerfoot today? Because you used to find the strangest things on the highway. What I don't understand, like I get it when people lose things. Things come out of the back of the vehicle, whatever. But then people don't go pick them up. That was from ABC7, by the way. The But people don't go pick up their stuff. And I don't know what you do with a sofa that's missing one cushion that is halfway between here and the next city. But nobody ever seems to go back and get that cushion. 
And I've seen full-size big barbecues on the side of the road. <laughs> and what I don't understand is, I got loading one up one day, and it I didn't look like it was his. Like, he looked like he was putting it in in a hurry, like, free barbecue. Um, but you know what I don't understand? Imagine this. Ryan and I, we load the barbecue in the back of the truck, and we go for a drive. Nice. And then we get to our destination, and we're like, hey, Rye. Shane. Didn't we put the barbecue in the back of the truck? Pretty sure I think we, we did. did. Yeah. So, where's the barbecue? Uh, I don't know. Oh well, guess we should just go about our day and never go get it. <laughs> go check the massive highway that we were on for an extended period of time, where we were traveling at a high speed with high winds. With other Maybe- cars. People don't want to go back just in case it landed on the hood of some poor little Civic and you got to pay for that. Don't want wants to take, just drive by and be like, it wasn't me. It was not my barbecue. Like that's, I don't know why pe- people don't go back. They don't go back at all. It's like when you see people driving with the garbage down the road and they, in the back of the pickup truck and then the wind starts turning in the back of the pickup truck and then they see, just see the garbage flying around in the back of the truck. Like, I, do you just not care? I don't know. I they must not. They must not. Or they, you know, it's it falls off, and you just go, eh. It's now the highways. I don't own it anymore. It yeah. now belongs to nature. We'll take this moment to thank everybody that does highway cleanup in the spring times to clean up all the garbage yeah. in the ditches. That's amazing, and the amount of garbage they pull out, by the way, is quite staggering. So, thank you for doing that. This is the Shift Podcast. When we go online, we get followed. We get followed by all kinds of people too. Interesting conversation, things you need to know about who's tracking what at work and online. Joining us now is professor at University of Victoria, Stephen Neville, electrical and computer engineering, plus a big long list of other things on his list of skills. Um, thanks for being here, tracking people at work and all of this stuff, tracking people as we do our recreational internet surfing inside computer engineering. This is happening. It comes because businesses in Ontario have to let their employees know that, um, they're being tracked or not. They have to have that policy done and they have 30 days well, less than 30 days now to get it out there. Let's just start maybe with your thoughts on that. Where does that sit with you? Cause working inside corporate corporations want to protect themselves but employees want to know if they're being followed. Yes, and there's um, legitimate reasons for corporations to want to understand how their computers are being used, um, at, particularly at work. So there's issues that companies get into in terms of where is their private proprietary, inf- proprietary information going, etc. Um, if you had, for example, a, um, a company that was doing deliveries, you'd want to know are my delivery drivers speeding through school zones? <laughs> That's a risk to the company. So there's some liabilities for the companies, but there's also issues around, you know, people are working from home. So if you're recording this information and it's a home computer, then you get into a whole pile of other issues about privacy, about home environments and all this other stuff. So there's other liabilities and there's always liabilities with um, in today's world about data collection. Data has liabilities associated with it can have private information in it so if i'm tracking so some of the tracking software will track you know keystrokes screenshots etc and then i have to start worrying about if i'm 
a um, member of a board of a company, um, all my passwords for my company are now in this data collection. I could have credit card information in it. I could have private information and all these liabilities show up. So I think for companies um, where they have legitimate concerns and reasons for paying attention to what's going on with their facilities and their computers, it really comes down to an an easy test is really if the media finds out that your company X is doing this, how big a problem is it for your company? (laughs) Are you about to get legal issues? Are you going to get embarrassed? Is society going to go, what are you doing? Um, your employees are posting in social media about what it's like to work for your company. Are you about to lose all your good employees? Uh, Glassdoor is another great review site that people will post on about what their culture's like at a company. So that would matter too. So there's legitimate reasons to collect data for, to deal with liabilities on the corporate side, but in collecting it, if you're not, you're creating other liabilities. So right. It's a- well, there's two pieces to that. Well, let's break it down, Stephen, because there's a couple of different scenarios that I sort of see. I think your example of driving a company car, I mean, I'm a business owner. So if I'm going to have a company car and someone else is driving it, you're darn right. I want to know how they're driving it. I'm insuring it. I'm paying for repairs. I'm paying for maintenance. I do right. want to make sure that you're driving it properly. Right. When it comes you- to, Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> So you also have a liability if something happens. Something happens. Now, if it's computers, though, this is where it gets weird because if I'm on my computer doing work, then that's my computer. The company should have no right to drop any software on my computer to monitor what I'm doing. If they give me access to VPN into you know their computer system, well, if they want to monitor what's on the VPN, fine. I'm logging into their system. But some companies ask you to put your company email on your phone. They ask you to do things. If you have a company computer, well, anything you do on that computer, frankly, shouldn't be surprised that somebody might be watching it. Um, You know, if you're going to be shopping on uh, eBay or Amazon and your credit card information is on the company computer, well, you put it there. So that part, I don't really have a lot of, you know, compassion for because you put it there. But there are these crossover moments. There are these crossover places where it's my stuff and you've asked me to save, right? Yeah, don't need then, a company phone for email and all that stuff. So that's where this kind of gets gray or am I missing something? No, it does. And it's the, the general term is bring your own device. So lots of companies are, okay, we want you to bring your own device, whether it's a mobile device, whether it's you know working from home. Um, I think from... If I put on my hat as a cybersecurity researcher, there's a whole pile of other issues if my corporate data is landing on your home computer, which is being used for lots of other things. There's security reasons why I would like to provide you a computer to use at home if you're doing work at home that is a work computer. I think it's more challenging for mobile devices. um, And there's other issues. So people use location-based services on mobile devices, which means you can track exactly where they're going and mm-hmm. there's all of this other data and i think that touches on issues for the company again those data sets that the company would be getting by doing that that has liability with them because mm-hmm. now i know where people have gone and that's private data and it starts falling under you know privacy regulations privacy acts etc so the whole pile of other liabilities so i think companies when they're looking at this have to be quite capable of quite conscious of looking at both sides of the coin and liabilities, mm-hmm. right? So I'm trying to protect certain things and they tend to forget about why well, I might be picking up other liabilities that are just as big or bigger. I know of a number of, uh, at least a couple companies that were 
significant companies in the neighborhood of a hundred million a year who messed up on privacy and closed their doors mm-hmm. because of it. This is a serious risk to businesses now. It is a serious risk. And, um, and not only that, because they have to protect customer privacy as well. So, I mean, the, those things go on and on and on. I mean, imagine that I have, I'm working for uh, Stephen Incorporated and uh, I've got customer information from Stephen Neville's company. And I've got it on my computer. Now, I create a vulnerability on a customer's personal information that, for me, really is not a lot of consequence. Maybe I lose my job. But for you as the business owner, holy moly, now your customer is livid because their information has been shared out, budgets, dollars, whatever. Those contractual terms show up in the contract. About That's contract language now about what happens if you're holding onto that data and you mess it up. I think the other side from when you get the the types of software that, for example, do keyboard logging, again, in that data set, I now have the passwords for everything in my company. That's a huge security. From a cybersecurity side, I now have a file that's probably not being handled the same way the passwords are that now right. has all the passwords in it. That's a hot, big risk from a cybersecurity side. Keystrokes, so, can you just for, can we break that down just for those who don't know what that sort of keyboard tracking, keystroke tracking, what that looks like? Cause that might be a new term for some people and it's very important. Yeah. I mean, it's basically you have various inputs into a computer. You can type on the keyboard, you can move the mouse, you can click the mouse, modern computers. Um, in this type of software, um, the extreme end of it can track all of that. They know which website you're on. They know which link you clicked on the website, they know what you typed in on your keyboard as a, as a record throughout time. So they know all the inputs you've given to your computer. That's wild. That is wild. Um, okay. So when we go online and we want to log into something, two-factor authentication, all of these things, we've gotten very used to it. In fact, one of the biggest breakdowns, I think, of the Rogers failure a few months ago was not only did that people lose cell service, but they couldn't verify to get into their work accounts. They couldn't verify to get into uh, some of their private accounts in order to get their day done. Even if they had internet, they couldn't verify things to do it. So that became problematic. Another automated thing that we've seen online is the uh, check all the boxes that have fire hydrants or stoplights. Prove that I'm not a robot. I'm not a robot. There have been some assertions going around that there's more going on in those checkboxes for privacy that we give up than just, by the way, you're a human being who clicked the box. Is that the case? What's happening there? Well, I mean, there are wider issues about what you can do with as people visit a website and what you can pull off on a website with Mm -hmm. cookies. Um, That's just an interaction with a website. The, The goal there is to, let's take an example of you're selling tickets to a music concert. If it's a computer, I can come in, I can grab all the tickets in the first second and then sell them <laughs> mm-hmm. through a scalping site for a higher price. So there's reasons to try and detect whether or not it's a human being on the other end. Mm-hmm. Um, so what those um, things are, are things, typically they're images, so they're good for, we're really good at seeing things in images that's quite challenging in computers so you'll notice that they're at odd angles and odd lighting so they're touching on the things that computers do bad for image recognition and that we're really good at so we can 
actually find the higher fire hydrants. If you miss, you get another one and you pick them in the next set of images. Um, there's ways to defeat that. So you can crowdsource getting the images. So it actually goes out to humans. They I get 10 humans to do it and I go, ah, now I know where the fire hydrants are. Right. But right, right. what it largely does is just slow down those interactions. Yeah. So, uh, well, there, lots of times people. that's been my experience anyway, when it comes to scraping uh, and any of those other quick interactions, every now and then you'll see uh, a website with just, it's nothing pretty. It's a message that says, please wait 0.25 seconds before continuing. And what's happened is, is there's just been too many requests too quickly coming from you for whatever reason. And uh, the, that server has gone, this can't be a human. Humans don't work that quickly. So there are some technology defeats, uh, defeats that are there yeah, to, to slow people down. Yeah. And there's ways to get around that from the attacking side too. I can use things called botnets. So now I have 10,000 computers that all touch in. Mm. I'm controlling all of them, but they all come in independently. Well, we used to do it when I had one of my old companies. Um, we did licensed music for business. And so as we, we had a robot that would scrape for, um, for data on that song. So when those songs came in and they were named, in order to get supporting data for the song, we would go out to various websites and hit their databases automatically and say, what genre is Guns N' Roses, for example? Um, or what or this particular song, Sweet Child of Mine, what do people say the mood is? And we would go to those public sites and we would hit their databases and say, well, people say that this song is happy and energetic and playful or whatever. Now, in order to pull that off automatically we had to learn what the website's cap was on requests and we literally would delay on our end on the robot we would delay please wait 1.26 seconds before the next request because then we followed the rules of what they wanted on the server it works yeah yeah and there's software engineering reasons for that because you can knock their server offline by just making so many requests it can't service right. them yeah, it's almost like a denial of service attack almost. It's fundamentally the same. It's just hammering them with so many requests that the server yeah, just kind of barfs. Yeah. From a technical spec perspective, it's not almost like when it is one. It is one. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, appreciate that. So, but are, are they, because there are some assertions that are bouncing around the social networks and stuff like that, like TikTok or whatever, that those checkboxes are giving those websites permission to dig deeper into your cookies, to dig deeper into your history. Have you heard of any things like that that are going on that maybe they're looking at deeper when we, we check those boxes? Well, again, from my, from my perspective, it's just a function of a website and that digging deeper into the cookies and stuff I can do from the website. Like, it's not that core functionality. That core functionality is just a little piece. I can do that on other parts of the website. I can serve you an ad that does that. Right. Makes sense. So it's, not, it's just functionality on the website and it's more the... Um, whether it was done through the code of the capture, not through the code of the capture, it's still relatively easy to do. Yeah. Well, and I would say that it's the, the capture code is probably just giving the data to someone else like Google, whereas the website is uh, doing it there. I know that I know um, in some of the, the codes that you can use to authenticate uh, a form, for example, you can Google will give you an automatic authentication thing. You give a little data to Google, you reduce your spam, everybody's happy, right? Like it's not, it's, it doesn't seem to be such a terrible thing. Uh, yeah, the challenge is there's lots of pieces on modern websites that are outsourced. Right. So that outsourced pieces then become opportunities for people to do malicious things so they can affect 
Um, so ads on websites, for example, there's ballpark, there was something like five to 7,000 companies that packaged up ads that you could show on your website. If I'm malicious, I hack one of those companies and get my malicious code somewhere in their ads. And now I show up on everywhere their ads show up. Yeah. One hack gets you 5,000 opportunities to yeah, be so nasty. These, yeah. The web page is just my interface with the user. Um, <laughs> there's a whole backend and a whole industry of various packaged pieces that then become opportunities to infect various pieces. Steven Neville is uh, he's a computer nerd, really. That's what it boils down to. <laughs> um, and so, Stephen, so what what do you see in day-to-day life today? Is there one thing that flags for you? Um, and I would love to hear both sides, why websites or co- companies do it. And for us as general users, is there one thing that's happening that you see that, that really makes you go, ah, oh, God, that one's got to stop? Well, I think the more interesting piece is really looking at society, let's say, over the last decade has become much more sensitive about the privacy issues and much more aware about how rich these data sets are and the tracking of it. So you're starting to see um, politicians react to those movements of society and start saying, look, there needs to be some regulations around this and there needs to be some appropriate things. So going back to the beginning, I think if I'm a company, then yeah, telling people, here's what we're tracking, here's the reasons we're tracking. Um, and it really has to be, you know, if I'm doing something else and the media gets a hold of it and it becomes a big press story and that's a problem, I probably shouldn't be doing it because I'm accepting all these liabilities. Right. But if it's rational and it says, you know, I'm going to track how fast you're driving the delivery car through school zones, society's going to go, yeah, we want you to do that. See, but I hear that as a boss saying, hey, Stephen, I know you have a company car and I really don't mind if you run your errands at your lunchtime or or on the way home with the car on the on the company fuel, but just keep it reasonable. I don't need you driving to Regina or Saskatoon for your son's hockey tournament on the company dime. If you stop at Safeway, I don't care. I mean, that to me seems like a reasonable work relationship in the balance of information that people share. Yeah. And again, it's really from a company side. If I was on a board of a company, it's really about managing those liabilities. If you're taking that car for a thousand mile road trip, that's a whole different set of liabilities. Right. You stop at the grocery store. So what particular thing that you get excited about where we're going here, how we're doing this right when you see either business or, or users, employees, personal users that we're actually getting somewhere? I I think the public's understanding and concern over privacy issues is useful. Um, I've got a long-term 30-year background in doing data analytics and industry data sets. Mm -hmm. And um, the things that you can pull out of data sets, Right. (laughs) um, I have a different technical perspective on that in terms of what I can pull out of a data set. Yeah. So I think it's good that people are becoming more concerned about this. Um, a lot of that tracking data. So for example, you have an app and it says, I need your exact location to give you some service. Um, that largely gets sold into the advertising industry. Yeah. But right. it's a, McDonald's is one of those, right? Um, Tim Hortons was another one. Those guys were, you weren't allowed to use their points programs unless you gave up your your location services, which they said, so you can find a restaurant, but really they're tracking if you're going to other restaurants. Right. So loyalty card, card programs are tracking buying habits, et cetera. Um, mm. I used to, I used to live in the, or I used to work in the San Francisco Bay area and there's a particular grocery store I went to 
the cashier noticed I was there a lot, didn't have a loyalty card. And she said, well, why don't you apply for one? And I said, well, I don't want to be tracked. So she gave me one that was effectively anonymous. Really? <laughs> number, but it wasn't tied to me. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Well, see, so that's good. But that's probably a Silicon Valley thing. They're like, I got you. We all live here. I got you. <laughs> yeah, having somebody with a tech background say, this is the reason I'm not doing that. Oh, well, here, we can solve that problem. Well, in some some stores you go to, you can just say, I don't have one. Can I use the manager's card or something like that? And they've got like a, a store card if you just ask, and then they'll swipe it and give you all the deals anyway. I mean. Yeah, that's that's what I ended up go- getting was the cashier's store card. And she just got it that's amazing. Yeah, sometimes you just have to ask. Uh, this is fascinating conversation, and there's so much more to be had here, Stephen. I, I really appreciate it. I love data. Um, clearly, next time I invite you to do this, it's going to come on a spreadsheet or something. Just keep it all so you can parse it properly. But spreadsheets aren't interesting. They don't have enough data in them. <laughs> so I'm guessing what what does that mean for you? Like you're talking like massive uh, yeah. SQL database yeah, searches. I mean, and- when, when people, so you hear these days about large-scale data. Mm-hmm. What people generally mean, this is more data than I've had before. In my world, it's terabytes of data become interesting. So yeah. really big data sets. Yeah. I'd, how do they store that in today's world? Is it still just SQL type stuff, massive data sets? No, it's, yeah, no. It's, Even bigger? It, yeah, it's stored in clouds in much bigger really? processes. Yeah, you start... SQL stuff starts breaking down at those levels. Oh, does it really? Hey, because SQL stuff can get pretty big. Um, and uh, that's interesting to find out that there are even more uh, yeah, you, storage yeah. ways than. Yeah, you move to distributed databases and stuff that's much more. So the stuff, because I'm director of software engineering, the interest is as computer systems get large. So, for example, if you're at Google and you only need 10,000 computers to do something, you don't have to ask permission. Right. So software systems that start you know, running on large platforms. Oh, it's fascinating. Okay, we got much more to talk about. So we'll end this one here. And uh, I want to know this stuff. This is great to me. And... I, I think it's super curious because people would, I think, you know, this community wants to know, how do they follow me? How do they know these things? I always get a kick out of people where they're like, you know, I don't, I cover my face when I walk through the mall. Well, of course you do. Um, but they know where you're going. They track you. They know everything you're doing. So. Yeah. Uh, I mean, particularly with modern mobile devices, because people have them on them all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have apps that are useful that have tracking but i only let it track when i want to use the app if the app's in the background it's not tracking right and a lot of those permissions the companies that are doing those mobile devices and the operating systems of them are getting much more sensitive about them and those controls are getting much more fine-grained and they're getting um there's a lot of pushback to the app developers to be much more sensitive about those issues yeah, it's fascinating. And I can tell you stories about that because I've had my own apps too. When you find out what the information you can get on an app is, changes your opinion on apps. Uh, thanks so much for being here. Um, our guest here, computer scientist, uh, professor from University of Victoria, Stephen Neville. It's great to meet you. Really appreciate it. Slight correction, software engineer, my software. computer colleague, my computer science colleagues will be... Uh... <laughs> That's a very computer science software engineer thing to do. So I love it. That's so good. Thank you, sir. It's a pleasure to meet you. No problem. Thank you. This is the Shift Podcast. Back in February, I wouldn't have thought that by October, we were still talking about it. Months and months and months later, Russia's invasion of Ukraine continues to roll. 
Although the good news is that some of it's rolling backwards. Let's go to Kiev, Ukraine. Stepan Berko is a lawyer. He's a law advocate. Stands for democracy in Ukraine, the future of the country, and all of that things, uh, all of those things. And not only that, I would say his uh, best skill. I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna give you the title, Stepan. I'm gonna give you the um, Ukraine's best dad title. How about that? <laughs> Hello, Shane. And hey. it's uh, very nice of you. That's good. I um, now I, I could give that to your dad, who's in Lviv, but um, I'm gonna give it to you. When you and I. Um, when we when we texted over the weekend this weekend, um, you know it's 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 a different place to be. We have conversations, you know, from Odessa and and some of these uh, different colleagues that you know through your professional life as well. The way I describe it before you come on or after you're on the radio step, and as I always say, you know, these are the stories of Ukraine from the eyes and the words of Ukrainian, which is different because we don't hear about it through articles and news reports and all those things. And, but for you, it's different. I mean, cause you, you're a, you're a young father. You have a young family and you are going through not only the work of the future of Ukraine, you're going through the day to day life of living in Kiev, the alerts and the alarms that are going on. And then you still have, um, you know, a, a little turkey, uh, child that's got to go to school and got a future and, and everything else. And so you manage all of those things. And I admire that. And you do it with grace, and I think that's really important. How are you doing, and how is the family? Uh, thank you, Shane, for these kind words. Um, we're doing okay. Uh, this Monday is much better than the previous two Mondays. At least we're not, uh, you know, sitting in our corridors for hours and hours. We this is probably. The, yeah, the first Monday since uh, since two weeks that we didn't have massive missile attacks, mm-hmm. and that means that everyone either going to uh, their jobs or to the kindergarten. So my son is in kindergarten, and me and my wife, we uh, I'm still not at my work, but she's at, at her work. So we're we're continue as usual. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it must be interesting when you, when you look at the future. If I just try to take the, the, the war stuff out of it, the skills that we learn as we go along here, you, I'm assuming, and please correct me, but I'm assuming that the skill of being able to not control everything, not worry about the schedule, we would say in English to go with the flow, to be able to adapt and realize that some days you're just not going to get all those things done that you wanted to get done. Has that really changed for you in your personal life and work life as you sit there and, you know, try to keep your child distracted as there are air raid sirens and realize, well, today's a day we're just not going to do much. Yes, that's, that's, uh, you described it so, so well. So that's, that's the way I and my family, we're trying to, to, to deal with this. So uh, if, if it's uh, more uh, cartoon time for a kid than usual, then it's just uh, this day he, he has this opportunity to watch more cartoons uh, because he has somehow to cope with this security situation. And, uh, um, yeah, you, you, you somehow have to accept the fact that uh, uh, some things just go not the way you want. And uh, uh, there are th- some things you control and some things that uh, are important and others can be uh, 
dealt with after after those these most important things uh, are dealt with. So, uh, but you know, this is not this is this is the tricky thing. Not everybody can do this. Um, people, for for example, at my work, people expect from themselves to be as efficient and as uh, productive uh, as if nothing is going on around. And uh, I see my uh, job also to to talk to these people and, and try to explain them that we, in these circumstances, we should not be that harsh on ourselves. Our guest here is Stepan Berko. He's in Ukraine in Kiev. Um, the signal every now and then gets choppy and BK gets him back so we can continue the conversation. What he's sharing with us is the, is the experience of what it's like to be able to be at work. And when people get stuck on, on that, Stepan, I'll continue with the same thought is that do you find that maybe some of your colleagues or coworkers are desperate to feel like they can get the same amount of stuff done? Kind of like, uh, Maybe the mentality is, you know, Russia doesn't get to take away my day or, or it's a really good distraction to not really accept how the gravity of the current situation. Maybe people use it. I mean, I know I do in my world. I use working as a, a great way to hide from the things I don't want to think about. Yeah, for, for some, for some, it's, it's a great distraction. But um, for, for others, it's, um, you know. It's 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 also a big uh, challenge to to accept the fact that you cannot be as productive. And uh, I try to convince people that sometimes in these circumstances you should let yourself be a bit lazy, because uh, you know uh, we're all going through some stuff that we we're not ready to. So uh, you, I mean, we we cannot do all work uh, in the world. So. Uh, maybe it sometimes it has to take more, more time because we're dealing with some serious uh, things uh, from psychological point of view, from uh, logistical point of view, and other things. Let me ask you a dad question. Stepan Berko's in Kiev, Ukraine. Um, you know, as a dad, I, I think of you that way, right? I've never, for for our relationship that we've developed over the last almost a year now, Stepan, I mean, that's the way I think of you first, because, you know, you've shared your heart with us about your family and your relationship with your dad going through this. You have an extensive education. Your professional life is, is a very busy and very successful. But when I think of you as a dad, I think of the children. And one of our very first conversations that we had back in February or early March was how you your family had left Kiev at the time and it was before your wife and your child had left the country and you had some other family with you too and the kids were playing in the background and that stays with me a lot i think about that quite often and when when i think about that i wonder about this crossroads and maybe it's taken me this long to have the courage to ask this question dad to dad there's two ways you can raise your child i'm assuming and again, please correct me. But I've come to the determination that there's probably two ways you can raise your child. You can raise your child to be um, ready for an ongoing battle in, you know, 15 years when they're adults and, and they go out and they, you know, kick ass over anybody who invades your country. Or you can raise your child to be this, uh, you know, loving hopefully child that never has to deal with this again because it gets dealt with 
Um, how do you how do you look at the future of the children of Ukraine as a dad? And how do you sit there and go, okay, patriotism inside Ukraine, and, and man, boy, your people are just so amazing what they're willing to do for your country for decades now. But how do you how do you look at the children and decide? Do we build them rough and tough, or do we build them, you know, kind and loving, and hopefully that your generation takes care of this so they never have to? Oh, Shane, this is a really tough question. I was thinking about it also for some time. And I think that uh, the answer is not that easy. So it's I think it's not either or. Um, because um, the, Russia will be around Ukraine for a long time. And this this is not a conflict for a year or two. This is an... Unfortunately, this is an existential conflict. And... Uh, it seems that uh, you, a democratic, independent Ukraine cannot coexist with uh, this authoritarian and imperialist Russia. So we will have this war in in some kind of um, uh, in in some kind of way going for years. So I think we have to, uh, on one hand, teach our kids that war is a part of life. And you have to be ready to defend your country uh, if you are trained and if you are uh, ready and if you are brave enough and you have if you have skills, you have to defend it on the front lines. Uh, if your uh, destiny is something else, I don't know, uh, doing some other important jobs that. Uh, help to protect our country and our people, then you have to do it remembering not only about yourself, but about uh, all of us. And uh, being tough uh, in uh, uh, defending your country does not um, exclude being kind to other people and being uh, and loving and... Uh, and um, you know, hoping for, for good, for better. So I think we, we have to combine these two components. Um, of course, uh, war is a, a very uh, dark uh, thing. And uh, these horrors that we see as adults, uh, it, it's really hard to explain yourself how these things can happen. But this is this is the way it is. And we sometimes have to find this uh, ability to both uh, see these things, uh, defend ourselves against these horrible atrocities, but at the same time not lose our humanity, not to lose our ability to love, to love not only our relatives or the people uh, um, of our, our citizens, of the people of your close ones, but to, to love... Uh, uh, people as human beings, and um, it's it's a it's a great temptation uh, in in these in these times to uh, say, uh, okay, let's say uh, our enemies they're not people. You know, war is really dehumanizing, and um, from the conversation that we had with my colleagues at my work last week, there is uh, there is this uh, debate going on. Uh, how to how do we um, uh, perceive Russians? 
because Russians are our enemies. They're people that are killing our children and our loved ones. Uh, but at the same time, uh, if we hate them as much as they hate us, from from the examples that we see on 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 the uh, battlefields and in occupied cities, aren't we becoming some? Aren't we becoming like them? So maybe this is a very uh, long answer to your question, but uh, I think that we have to find this balance, both being tough against uh, um, against aggression, against evil, but at the same time keeping this uh, ability to love, ability to be human, ability to empathize, um, because this is what makes us uh, uh, good. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Oh, it's perfect. It's not a long answer. I think it's very well uh, described. Empathy is a, a very difficult thing at times, right? I, I really appreciate what you said when you said, you know, you, otherwise we become them if we just become filled with hate. And if, but empathy, the willingness to see, I don't diminish by any means the nasty that has come out of Russia onto Ukraine, but I can't help, and you can tell me if this is offside or inappropriate, please, but I can't help but feel a little bit empathetic to some of those people that have been brainwashed for decades inside Russia, that they've been brainwashed and lied to, and they continue to get lied to today. And it it, it must be difficult to say, you know, these are just normal people who are trying to live their lives that are probably never going to serve in the military or whatever. Their belief systems follow all of the brainwashing, all of the nasty. But at the same time, they've been lied to for so long. And that crossroads of trying to figure that part out and saying, you know, how do I not become nasty myself, but at the same time, take a stand and say, by the way, everything you're doing right now is wrong for me. And that's got to be so difficult and yet so clear at the same time. You know, I don't know if there are many situations in life, Stephen, where, you know, where it is, well, actually, you studied law, so I imagine there's probably an awful lot of situations in law where it's incredibly clear but incredibly muddy at the same time. You see, Shane, the situation that you are describing about people being brainwashed and uh, believing this propaganda, uh, it's not that uh, it's not that uh, obvious. I can give you some example about um, the family of my wife. Uh, her aunt lives in Russia, and uh, she knows us. We we've met uh, sometimes, and she knows about the situation in Ukraine. Uh, but she believes propaganda not only because she listens to it every day, but because she wants to believe it, and it's also. I, I believe that, and I see it from, from many, many examples from people who talk to their relatives in Russia and friends in Russia, that it's, it's, it's a choice. Sometimes when you argue with them and you give some examples and they're cornered with these examples and there's just no way that they can rationally um, provide some arguments against what you're saying, mm-hmm. then they switch to, to just... Uh, some irrational uh, things. And that means that they they want to believe this propaganda. So uh, Russian propaganda is very smart. 
they're using some, uh, and I think it's um, it's always propaganda works like this. They take some things that people want to hear, want to 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 believe in, and they uh, you know cover them with the, with the arguments and with the topics that are uh, needed to 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 put in their minds. So Russian people. I'm not, uh, I know I'm generalizing, but from, from my experience and from, from the stories that I heard, they believe in this uh, propaganda, not because they were brainwashed, but because they like it. And of course, if they lived in, in uh, you know, society, society that they can check the information and you know, decide for themselves, maybe um, that is not that easy in Russia right now, but still there's mm-hmm. internet. And despite the fact that in Russia many websites are uh, um, uh, forbidden for access, but uh, much much information can be found even on the Russian internet. Uh, but people choose not to do it because they, they like the way they live, they like the, what they believe in. And, uh, you know, it's also the question, it's, it's like being a slave and liking your chains. It seems to me that that's what Russians are generally doing. So mm-hmm. their the choice not to uh, the choice to trust propaganda is like being a slave and liking your chains and liking your master and not even thinking about uh, breaking these chains. And it makes me, um, me think of the word convenient. Yes, yes, it's convenient. You live your life. You don't bother thinking about what uh, your inaction is causing these deaths and it's really easy to rely on someone else than on yourself i know that it's also the 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 totalitarian um, past that haunts uh, russians but we in ukraine also had this totalitarian uh, past Uh, and of course our society is traumatized and uh, um, we also have so many problems with uh, people being uh, um, reluctant of uh, being responsible for their lives. But uh, right now the situation is so clear. It's so black and white. And uh, in these times, it's, it's, it's unacceptable to, to say, oh, yeah, I just believe in this. And it's, it's, uh, this inaction is just uh, being responsible for your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, our guest right now is Stepan Berko. He is in Kiev, Ukraine. Uh, let's get into one uh, update on what is going on in the war before we're done for today, because I'm so grateful for your time. You're very generous. Um, electricity. How is the electricity? There is more reports on the BBC and here on our global news network that uh, strikes over the weekend hitting the energy grid, targeting critical infrastructure and all of that. Are you seeing any trouble yet where you are, or is this just sort of happening in smaller places? No, this is happening already for two weeks. So we're, we're we've been having power cuts, and uh, there is this schedule. So you you kind of can uh, you, you you can predict when um, the power cuts will happen in your area, but it's really inaccurate because Russians are hitting infrastructure every day. So let's say like two days ago we had uh, three power cuts in the day. And you have to plan your day more carefully. So um, the government asks uh, asks people not to use heavily some equipment like washing machines or dishwashers or stoves, electric stoves, 
during the high peaks of uh, electricity um, need, like uh, from 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 seven in the morning until eleven uh, before noon, and and on, then also uh, from five p.m. to to midnight. Uh, that means that you're planning your dishwashing or um, uh, washing clothes for night. Uh, you have to cook your food uh, the, ahead, you know, of, of the schedule. So it's ready in the morning and you're not uh, using uh, these power appliances. Um, and uh, when, when we have, this is a really tough situation where we have uh, no electricity, we have no water because pumps are not functioning. Uh, and uh, we also have very bad uh, uh, cell connection. Uh, and that means that it's a really big challenge to know whether there is air alarm in your area is, since your phone has no connection. And the only instrument for that is radio. So people are now buying just, you know, regular radios like uh, uh, that until recently were not that popular. And then this is the only mean to, to, to know whether uh, you have to go to the shelter or to the, your corridor to, to be safe. Um, and people, when, when they talk about this situation, obviously this is uh, not convenient. People uh, are used to, 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 to use electricity and appliances when, when they need them. But uh, after this first shock, it seems that Ukrainians are also getting used to that. And we understand that we just have to live through this situation. This will not take, you know, forever. Uh, of course, this winter will be tough because uh, um, if we have no electricity, that means that uh, our homes uh, won't be heated, at least until we get this electricity uh, on. So yeah, some new challenges, but we're trying to deal with it. It's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. Seven Berkos in Kiev, Ukraine. And there's one text message that came in, Stepan, that I want, to, um, I want to read for you. It's from a guy called Lyle. He lives in Kamloops, B.C., on the uh, west coast of Canada. Well, not on the coast, but on the western side of Canada. And he says, hello, Shane. I sure hope your guests and his family are safe. It's a pleasure to hear him tonight. We wish him and his family the very best during these difficult times. Thank you for having him on. So there you go. Um we all say thank Th you. Thank you so, so much for these kind words. Uh, we in Ukraine, we feel support uh, of Canadians and for, of other uh, people of free will. Uh, and this helps us uh, in these uh, harsh circumstances as civilians and, of course, as uh, for the, those who are on the front lines to fight. Because we believe that uh, we're on the front lines of civilization. Because it's it's really a fight against uh, between democracy and uh, authoritarian regimes, and we have to be strong. And the Ukrainians are ready to be strong. And with your support, we will we will win. It's fascinating. Thank you so much for being here, brother. It's great to hear your voice. Thank you, Shane. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.